So I'm joined today by our, our regular contributors, our contributors, Courtney Fraley, whom you all know from most of the rest of our videos, uh, Steve Augustine, who's been in one already, and then we've got two new people. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves for the uh, awaiting masses of five or six people who actually watch these things? <laughs> I love that. I am Emmy. I work as a pediatric hospital chaplain, and um, I am friends with Don from our time as hospital chaplain interns together. And so we've always got fun pastoral care topics between us of like stupid shit that people said to patients when we were uh, seeing patients and um, just like general hope for the church and hope for how like we as I'm glad to have you, and I'm going to be making at least one or two in-jokes as things go on, so I may have to explain those. <laughs> well, I'm JJ. Uh, I know Don from our time at uh, Princeton Seminary, uh, and uh, have the honor and privilege of pastoring a United Church of Christ uh, congregation here in the lovely city of Watertown, New York. Uh, our claim to fame is that we are uh, 30 miles away from the Canadian border. Uh, so, woohoo. Uh, woohoo! Um, um, so, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So, you're a boot in Canada, you might say. I guess you could say so, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me pull out the Uber accent, guys. Nobody wants to hear it. Uh, I know at least one oh of our subscribers on YouTube is is a Canadian living here in Japan. So that joke was just for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have got with a group like this, we've got a host of topics we could probably dig into. Uh, but I think there's one with this many people from this diverse of backgrounds is one that we should probably segue into. And I'm going to leave that to, uh, to Courtney and Steve to kick us off here, since you want to present to the pastors here, as it were. <laughs> uh, what's, what, what do we want to talk about? Today? Um, I've been kind of wanting for a while to talk about what, what is the church's problem with the gay community? Why, what, why, like, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot in the Bible about it. Um, I've heard a lot of mixed things about the passages that are there. 
um it's the whole how much do you even consider stuff from the old testament thing why is that in particular such a big deal to so many people like why do they care <laughs> well so that's a good place for us to start i guess um as yeah, i think the, the springboard off that i would i would want to talk about a little bit about uh this it kind of feeds into that it may be an underlying issue in general for all the problems but what's with the what I see is biblical illiteracy in the evangelical community and right-wing Protestantism. Your, your, your typical rural or suburban Christians that have that are likely to have a problem with the gay community have so many other things going on there too, where they're just cherry-picking scripture or interpreting it poorly or getting poor uh, interpretations fed to them from their their clergy. Yeah, or from their family. Um, I'll start by sharing that um, I'm a queer woman and um, one of my dear friends is someone who grew up in a fundamentalist household portraying themselves as like a more progressive evangelical household of like, well, we're not like those fundamentalists, basically, like we really think about the context of scripture. And um, we were talking about queer issues one night at her kitchen table and her mom came back with a 19 page clobber passages print out from the internet and just sort of dropped it on the table and said, take a read. This was her daughter. The passive aggression in uh, quote unquote, what? Ah, unlimited minutes, okay. Um, so the the passive aggression that you're that you're talking about happening um is something that i think we see a lot in the quote unquote uh moderate evangelical christians where it's like you know oh that they it's not so much that the views are different it's that they want to pad them and make it look like yeah. you know oh I completely don't tolerate you or your lifestyle choices, which if I never hear that again, it'll be too soon. Um, but it's with love and it's like, are you acting with love? You know, and I'll, yeah. I'll, speak, I'll speak as the designated uh, cishet white guy here in the conversation. Um, you know, as I, as I said earlier, the guy who checks all of the boxes for a person who should not be talking about this subject. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that a lot of this has to do with, with control. And um, I will even run the risk of, of being completely out of line by, by um, referencing something said by Dr. King here, um, where he talked about the moderate as being the problem. And I think that that is, that is true on a multitude of issues. And I am a guy who fancies myself a bit of a radical. And I've always said that a moderate in cases of justice is someone who is a radical but doesn't want to get judged for it and i think that's People really what to save their own skin yeah you're you're if you're if you're a moderate who says well you can be here i just i don't want to judge but i just don't want you to put it in my face you're judging you just don't want to be judged for it and that's really all it is yeah so i think another thing that 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 has to be talked about um, Brene Brown has a has a podcast. Um, I cannot remember the name of the episode, um, but she talked about the power of having a shared enemy. Yeah, um, and how that creates how that creates community. 
uh, for certain folks. And when you look at evangelicalism, uh, what is what fuels the evangelical movement, especially when it comes to voting and uh, the political power that the evangelical movement has? They have they have historically been two issue people. Yeah, those issues are LGBTQ equality, LGBTQIA plus equality, and abortion. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the history of of the abortion issue, when it comes to the Supreme Court in the United States, um, the Supreme Court for the longest time has been majority conservative. And yet Roe v. Wade has never been overturned. Yep. And so that, that says something that about- like a good law. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, 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 it says something about how, how those two issues have become political pawns uh, to, to sway voters uh, to be on, on the Republican or conservative side, the GOP side, of things every time it comes time to vote. Uh, because we never hear about these issues being issues until there's an election cycle going on. And so now yeah. they've be- become so ingrained in, in the way the evangelical church has rooted itself theologically that there's this amalgamation of both theology and politics um, that I think fuels exactly what Dr. King was talking about when he talks about uh, the white moderate being being the, the the people who are most evil or most dangerous yeah and that's that is and i love the fact that you you went there right the hell off the bat is the the intersection of church and politics i mentioned earlier that it's all about control structures well politics is the biggest control structure we've got and is it you know any wonder that this issue is directly connected to that? yeah you know i've heard a lot of people complain this is like one of the things that the evangelical atheists, as I like to call them, love mm-hmm. to spout off about, about how the church is the root of so much evil in the world. And I feel like if it wasn't for the ambition towards like power, political or otherwise, I mean, I guess all power is political. That's its own weird thesis there. But um I, I, I just think it's it's the pursuit of power in general that's the issue, the pursuit of control and all of that. Um, I feel like there's there's going to be a problem with that, whether you've got religion in the picture or not. And I, I just felt like that needed to be interjected in here because it's one of those things. I mean, you know, my dance with religion has been uh, wild and varied, but also like we all share that i really just get frustrated with and again i i refer to them as evangelical atheists the ones that it's like but you need to hear the news about not god (laughs) so so i would i would agree with courtney um and this may shock some folks i mean being being someone who who serves as a pastor uh i i do think uh as shocking as it may be that the church is in a lot of respects, evil. Um, uh, We, the church has been responsible for so much harm, uh, especially as it relates to LGBTQ folks. Um, And and I hope that those who are listening to me understand that I, I, you know, I stopped the alphabet at Q, but I'm very mindful of those who are intersex and asexual and, 
and who are beyond those things. So uh, it's just easier for me to write off LGBTQ, but I definitely don't want this to be heard as, as any form of erasure. Right. Um, um, but I do think I do think that we, especially those of us who are clergy people, have to be have to be accountable to to the to the accusation and the allegation that the church is evil. Um, uh, we we can't we can't walk away from that and act as if it's not true. Um, and I think we need to we need to put the mirror in front of us and say. Uh, how are we guilty of perpetuating a system of hurt and harm against people who, who the church should be open to? Um, yeah. I mean, I serve as a pastor, but I wrestle with my place in the institution every day mm -hmm. um, because I was one who thought I could change this system from the inside out. Uh, and, and I've been on the, on the side of receiving harm from the inside. And so what happens when you come in wanting to be somebody who flips the system and the system flips on you. Um, so I, I'm right there with you, Courtney. That's one thing you and I, I have in common is we've both gone through a couple of different systems trying to do that too. Absolutely. I think it also needs to be said that um, it's nice just to have someone to talk to about this. But when Courtney mentioned the evangelical atheists, it's like when you wanna have a discussion about LGBTQ rights or abortion or whatever, and you're having a discussion with progressives who are evangelical atheists, the second they you bring up any religious ground, suddenly your points have no no value to them, yeah. which is super frustrating. Hmm. And then that that's also I've had him dealt with a few of those before, and it's just like I'm I don't want my faith getting dragged through the mud by either side. That's that's yeah. in so many circles. Like any any circle where you want to talk about anything, like high minded in any way. Like the second that I let it slip, like partway through the semester in my philosophy one hundred and one cl class back at community college, that I was Christian. Literal, I could I watched on some people's faces their respect for me drop, and the way that I got oh. treated by my classmates in any kind of discussion was immediately like so much more dismissive. And I was just like, and the, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? that, and it wasn't like I own, was constantly piping up about Jesus or whatever. It was- And just, that has its own separate uh, thing that where it backfires because you've got the, the extreme evangelical Christians that are pushing this narrative of persecution. And the fact that that happens plays into that in some real danger yeah. ways too. It's, I think it's always dangerous to claim victimhood when it's not there. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very easy for people outside of a circle to point to other people's complaint of victimhood and be like, that's not real. But the fact of the matter is when it comes to being Christian, being white, being straight, you know, all of it, there's, there is inherent, like if you are part of the inherent majority of a population, no, just by default, you are not really oppressed. <laughs> It, it, that's not how societies work mm -hmm. but at the same time there are going to be that doesn't mean individual incidences of like discriminatory behavior don't happen towards people in a majority and I feel like it really kind of is obnoxious the way that a lot of like I mean 
I don't think I, a couple of you, uh, Don and Steve are close friends of mine. I don't know that I've ever brought up that that happened in college to either one of you, um, because it didn't really affect my overall life and all that, that much. Yeah. It was just that semester and part of that semester. And it was one class. Like it doesn't matter all that much. It's not real oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel uh, like there's this tendency of, uh, like mainstream Christianity for, to like, look for places that they can point to and be like, aha, see, we are oppressed. We are, you know, being mistreated yeah. for a religion. It's like, no, that's historical, not how any of this works. There's a historical piece because so much of our identity is rooted in this idea of, you know, the Christians being fed to the lions. Where are the persecuted? That's kind of like who we are, which, you know, is bull. It's complete crap. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I would push that a little further and say that the erroneous thinking around um, Christians always being the persecuted group actually is it is rooted in a in a core tenet of our theology that Jesus yeah. was crucified, right? Mm -hmm. That there that 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 there was some salvific uh, uh, power in him dying on a cross, yeah. uh, and so I say to uproot the victimhood, we have to uproot the doctrine of, of the cross being salvific, which would piss a lot of people off because it, it is that piece at the center of Christianity that allows us to lean into our martyrdom or the martyrdom com complex. You yeah. know, we like it gives us license to believe that, oh, I'm going into the world as a lamb to the slaughter and they're all out to get me. Um, so there's that piece. And then there's also the piece that we, as clergy, I mean, I can't speak for those who, who aren't in this position, but like it's our task to expand what it means to be a Christian. So yeah. I think, I think it, it's up to us to remind people over and over and over again that there's no set no set way to be a Christian. Um, I, I catch a lot of flack for this, but I tell people all the time that I am a Christian in principle. So yeah. I, I believe in following the principles of Jesus, uh, but a lot of the doctrine and dogma I think is absolute crap. Yeah, and we've talked about this in previous episodes about how a lot of the doctrine, the dogma, the positions, the theory, even large chunks of the theology were tools that we developed to be assistive. And if they're not helping, we don't need to keep using them. Yeah. This always, this, I, you know, I, I paint myself as being like this, you know, pissed off, sarcastic, uh, you know, squeaky wheel in the, in these conversations, but honest to God, like every time you start bringing that stuff up, it just sets off like my inbuilt, like, pearl clutching alarm <laughs> like oh you can't say those things and I'll, I'll admit that's part of the reason why i wanted a couple other pastors on the podcast so you can see it ain't just me who's saying that it is it is refreshing yeah. and intimidating at the same time to look at I, I think that's that's part of it it's very intimidating to look at your religion as something that has to be rebuilt because i think people go to religion a lot of times wanting to find some kind of peace and like stability 
in their lives. Yeah. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. But when you realize that a bunch of your religion needs to really be rebuilt from the ground up in order to be practiced in an ethical and like just way, that's that's very intimidating and not what I think a lot of people want to hear. You know, I might even argue that it's not that the religion needs to be rebuilt, that we never built the damn thing in the first place. You know, we when, when Constantine came around, we converted into an imperial system and we're like, okay, let's build a a state system and Christianity has been a state system. We never built the damn religion to start with. I I, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, yeah, I, I I think that is so true. I think I think we've been taking something that was used as as a as a tool of control and just trying to rework it instead of doing what needs to be done and blowing it up and saying. Let's start from let's start from the bottom up, uh, using using this the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus as a model for what it means to be radically welcoming, radically in inclusive, radically loving, um, all of those things, right? Um, uh, and we use those terms in church so often, but like I don't think that there are many people who actually want to live that out because it costs to do that it, it like the reason why you don't hear pastors talking like this is because it removes their ability to control and 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 nobody wants to talk about uh how i won't say most um but there's this there's this inherent desire to be in a position of control like that nobody talks about that draws people to ministry. It puts you in a position of power. Um, and so- Yeah, we love that. Yeah, exactly. And so if we don't wrestle with that, if we can't name that as the source that needs to be uprooted, then we'll constantly be having talks that actually should have been, we should have been done having them a long time ago. So Emmy- well, I, 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 I have a thought on a question for that one. Um, I, I kind of also, I think my eyes almost fell out of my head and I saw Courtney's reaction when you said um, not viewing the cross as salvific. I, I, that was where the, where the pearl clutching alarm, as Courtney put it, waste that her reaction started. And I think, um, I know it would be pretty hard to teach all of Christendom right now that it's um, Jesus in his time was fighting a completely different system as opposed to what we have now where Christianity is pretty much de facto state religion even though it's not really state religion officially. It so kind it's a of system completely. <laughs> but um, uh, you could teach that. And, and there's also, obviously everybody knows the parables where Jesus has dinner with the tax collector or befriends the prostitute or you name it. He was always with the outcasts and the sinners. And why is that so difficult for congregations to do of the lay people to welcome I mean, not every, every church is different. There are some that are really welcoming, but yeah. that's where you run into trouble as well. Like, I, I think it would be, we, we could improve in more than one way here. I, I don't disagree with I don't disagree with this blowing up the system and starting over, obviously, but that's hard to do. And like, we can't, I, we're, Courtney and I cannot just blow up the system in the same way a, a clergy person could blow up the system. But uh, what can we do in terms of like dealing with unwelcoming unwelcoming sorts or the or, or the playing victim well i think I, and i want to throw this out here and I, I 
Emmy, I want to get your take on this because you've been, A, you've been quiet for a little bit, and B, I know you and I have had a couple of good discussions on exactly what I'm about to talk about here. But mm -hmm. you mentioned the parables, and when we're particularly when we're talking about LGBTQ, add disclaimer here, the same as JJ said earlier, um, when we're talking about those particular subsets of issues, uh, there is a desire to ignore a, ignore the parables, but B, to ignore the, the and this will play into the biblical literacy bit of it too, but to ignore some of the context surrounding some of the parables that we'd rather not have that context to. One of the ones that always comes to mind for me is Jesus and the centurion's servant, uh, which is one, one of yeah. my favorites because like- Just pals doing pal things. Just, just guys doing guy things as best friends were. He was his, his servant, he did things for him and Jesus and I read a whole thing on the word the Greek and the words used to describe that servant that was quite fascinating exactly the word and the, the hierarchy of servants and yeah and that's where biblical know. literacy is a big issue because if you actually read the damn thing in the actual damn language then you realize it's not saying what you are saying it says uh, I don't believe this uh, that that word means what you think it means you know like stuff So, Emmy, I wanted to get your comment on that because I know you and I have, have had discussions about some of these parables before. Um. I'm trying to think of some of our past discussions because I'm I'm mainly just taking things in right now. You know, it's so nice to hear different perspectives, and it's good. You know, like as someone who doesn't work in a parish ministry, you know, my hospital is my parish, but like honestly, throughout the day, I'm with people who like are of many different religions. And sometimes I understand the agnostics and atheists more than I understand the Christians because I was an agnostic slash atheist for 20 years. And sometimes I don't recognize the Christian theology of my Christian patients. And I'm like, whoa, like, oh boy, that was a lot. Like, can we, uh, can we go back and tell me where you learned that you can't be mad at God or you can't doubt God? Like, Show me what page that was on. Like, who needs to read Job? <laughs> right? Like, let's open the song. Let's see. Let's see all these words of all these people. Right? But so, um, I'm thinking of someone who's working outside of a traditional context, where like the hospital has done a lot of harm to people. Right? Like hospital systems in general have done a lot of harm to people. And like my my general role in my own blowing up my system that I'm in is making sure that patients are talked about with dignity, right? Patients are talked about with dignity, patients are treated with dignity, patients are never called words like vegetable or anything like that. Because I believe in the inherent dignity of all people regardless of what they can do. So that's like my blowing up the system thing that I do on a daily basis. And so it's like it's always interesting for me to hear from like what are people trying to do within the church um and i mean the parables are just so striking right like parables are striking in terms of who he sends time with and who he doesn't enjoy spending time with um the people who thought he would enjoy spending time with them often are sort of labeled as well you misunderstood the point right like you misunderstood the point and so that word doesn't mean what you think it means kind of thing. 
and it just it makes me sad like I think it was Courtney who was talking about like you have this whole long book and you go ahead and circle six verses in them and that those verses all of a sudden become more important than all of the parables and all of the stories of him going and sitting with the exact kind of person that Christians wouldn't want showing up in their church right like they don't want someone who is transgender and like not quote unquote passing. Yeah. They don't want someone they can tell is trans. Like they don't, they don't want that. Like they don't, they'll they'll never necessarily say it in those moderate evangelical churches because they're, they're so focused on like, well, we're not the Westboro Baptist church, right? We don't think that you're evil just for We just don't like the evil that you do. Or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And so, like, no one's going to say it for the most part in these sort of evangelical churches that, like, think that they have a lot of context around the scripture, right? Because their pastor will be like, we're going to do a deep dive in the book of Romans for the next three months. And then there's 40 minute long sermons. But, like, what books aren't being preached on, right? Like, James is never preached on in that kind of church. And like other books, spending time with Micah. Yeah, Micah has never preached on that kind of church. Like I was reading the book Like Too Long uh recently, which is about um the inherent interconnection between American Christianity and white supremacy, because all throughout the building of America, pastors were the same people who were inviting people to lynch mobs or were doing the lynching or we're on the white citizens council or you know we're the mayor or this or that so there was this like stamp of approval on these sorts of things and so like there is this like they talked about the place bible where like it was only like 10 percent of the bible and the slave owners had ripped out all of the prophets and anything that could potentially be used to liberate people or inspire them to see that God has liberatory plans. And so like, I think about that when I think about church's sermon series, like what are you not preaching on or what do you preach on as if it is 80% of the text? Do you ever preach on the angry prophets? Do you ever preach on the parables where Jesus is like very uninterested in the outwardly religious people and very interested in those who like people don't want in their church? Mm-hmm. And that shapes an identity too uh, within Christians, the ignorance of these larger chunks of the Bible. And I, I, I got a, a colleague of mine who was by no means me, who was in their ordination process uh, and told someone on their ordination committee that the, the primary theme of the Bible is liberation and got smacked down hard for that and told you haven't read the Bible. And the correct uh, answer to that is of course, no, I just haven't read the same six verses you're reading. Um, yeah. The, the worst part about this is, is, and I, I'm, I'm going to use this as a mild redirect because I want to get us back a little bit towards some of the LGBTQ issues that we've been talking about. Um, what I think is kind of one of the rough parts about this is that those six verses that, that are, are highlighted here are often themselves completely misunderstood. And of course, that's the clobber passages for one. Um, but they're often completely 
And I, and I don't just say misinterpreted because that, that phrase is so abused in our discourse around uh, the, the Bible. But I say literally misunderstood as in you are using words in a translation that do not reflect the words in the original text. The, the verse that we all know from um, uh, Leviticus is one of the best examples of that. The man shall lay, not lay down with man that actually says man shall not lay down with little boys. Um, yeah, because that was very common in some cultures at that point as just, mm -hmm. this is what we do. Yeah, so like, you know, I I don't want to so, talk too much, but yeah. So I think, I think what's important in the conversation that we haven't touched on, um, as, as we think about the church's negative response to people who are part of uh, the queer community, right? Um, I don't think any of us have, have dared to talk about our own evolution around the, our own thought process of queer inclusion in the church. So I will be the first to say, I was not always as progressive as I am now on the issue of sexuality. Um, because I grew up in a very conservative space that's, that said, um, if you were not involved in a, in a cis heteronormative uh, marriage um, uh, as the only expression of love and, and uh, the only uh, system for procreation and all of those other things that you know you hear in conservative evangelicalism, um, for years I held on to that. Uh, until I, until I started to wrestle with the text for myself. The reason why I think that's important to name in a conversation like this is because it creates space for the people who we pastor and the people who we sit in church with to wrestle yeah. with for themselves to say, hey, I was not always where I am. Um, yeah. it, it took some willingness to, 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 be, to be able to listen to other people and a willingness to wrestle and a willingness to be corrected um, and called out on my BS. Um, uh, uh, there, there are plenty of people who, who I know, um, uh, not, not when it comes to issues of queerness, but most of my ministry experience has been in predominantly white spaces. And I know, I know several people who I've worked on staff with at churches who were deeply, deeply, deeply racist uh and did not realize how racist they were uh and now that we've begun doing the work of of really understanding how they perpetuated white supremacy and and ignorance and racism in doing some of the things that they had done for years um and a lot of them have come back and and said you know i was wrong for the stuff that i did but that would have never happened had the space not been created for them yes. by other white folks to say, hey, like there's room for growth and there's room for, for wrestling here. And so I think it's important to talk about uh, inclusion, but I think we do need to be honest and say, not all of us were always where we are now. Yes. Yeah, I, I wanna I wanna double down on that a little bit too. And this is something that as you know, cishet white guy, I've honestly gotten a lot of feedback for saying, uh, and not any of it positive, but <laughs> I, 
I do firmly believe that part of the journey towards the, the inclusive society we want involves making room for people to grow. And there is an instinct when we encounter people who have these admittedly very abhorrent views that we can stand here and Lord knows I have done this, stood up in the pulpit and said that that is fundamentally anti-Christian. But there is, a, there is a desire we have to take that one step farther and say that is fundamentally anti-Christian, the fuck out of here. And yeah. I think that is, and this is, a, not everybody agrees with me on this and I understand why, because you don't want people with those views in your community. But I have yet to, to encounter a satisfactory answer that explains how do we get towards the world we want without making that space. Yeah, I think my, my thought about it is as, as a lay person who doesn't have to keep or is not trying to reconcile with everyone and doesn't have to keep these abhorrent views in their echo chamber or in their space, it becomes kind of an echo chamber. And I would say I have a very good um, understanding of the clobber passages, what they actually say, what their context are, to the point where when friends argue about LGBT issues, I chime in and Don tells me I'm right. So <laughs> <laughs> that's happened a few times. Which I love doing. <laughs> I find, uh, especially when someone wants to argue with me because I don't have any supposed education in it other than self-teaching. Um, but I think what happens with um, my like thoughts on the LGBT, uh, LGBT space in the church um, is that the only people remaining that I can talk to about this are like the really the modern like I would say modern, like moderate or even left-leaning evangelicals. If you want, that sounds really weird, but they're on the left side mm -hmm. of that space. And they're always super willing to um, do the mental um, logic needed to disregard Leviticus because they, they don't want to be seen as cherry picking. But then you get to the New Testament and then they have problems. So what do? Like, I mean, I know what the, what the problem with the New Testament is with Paul making up words and other things <laughs> in Greek and, uh, but try telling them that and they're like, that, that's too much, so. so. So my answer to that is that we have, we have, we have deified Paul in a way that, yeah. um, that Paul should have never been put on the pedestal that Paul has been put on. Um, there are many Christians who quote Paul more than they do Jesus. Uh, and, and if it were up to me, I'd say that a lot of what Paul has, uh, because Paul is credited with a good amount of what's in the New Testament, um, I think a lot of it is absolute trash. Um, and that's going to get me in trouble with a lot of people, but I don't really care. Um, the sound of me completely not disagreeing with that, by the way. <laughs> but I, I want to throw this piece out here, too, that let's not forget that Paul wasn't included in the majority of the New Testament because they thought he was the best example. He was no. included because literally everyone else was wiped the fuck out by the Romans. That is true. So, I mean, so I think we need to wrestle with, um, and, and this is why I love being a part of a denomination that holds to uh, the idea that God is still speaking. Um, yeah. It is, it is, it is one of the, one of the, some would say it's a marketing line of, of the UCC. I would say it's actually central to how we, how we kind of uh, navigate 
denominationalism and just faith in general. Um, the belief that God did not stop speaking when the canon was closed. Uh, um, I think that that is the way that you combat uh, um, the veneration of Paul. Uh, to yeah. say that, that, that there are testaments still being formed today uh, within Christian community and beyond. Uh, so I'm one of those people who, who believes that God is not just speaking through the echo chamber of Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think depending on who you talk to, uh, God can be found and the gospel can be experienced through just regular conversation. And when I, and I realize that when I say gospel, that has a heavily Christian connotation to it. But when I'm using the term gospel, I simply mean there's good news to be shared uh, across faith traditions outside of Christianity. Um, and mm -hmm. so I, for me, the answer to uh, the problems in the New Testament would be, why are we narrowing our sources down to just these 66 books? And in some cases beyond the 66 books, if we look at the Apocrypha. Mm -hmm. yeah. And now, Courtney, you and I have talked about this before, about trying to encounter God in places other than than church or religious institutions. I know this is something that's been weighing on you, too. Yeah, I, I had, I mean, I've had a lot of sort of spiritual crises over, you know, the last 20 years or whatever. Um, but one of the points at which I realized maybe spiritual crisis wasn't necessarily a bad thing for me and was God's way of pointing me in his direction on the path that I could reach him best um, was through other things. It was the realization that the most sacred, genuine feeling, religious type experience that I had had in I didn't know how long what had to do with basically just like meditating in the energy of the solar eclipse that we had a few years back like and I know this is this is some this is some full-on like lesbian witchcraft crap I know <laughs> like I'm out there just like covered in my crystals and in my hippie stuff and just like but and I mean, I can make fun of myself about it, despite the fact that I'm still dressed in practically the same outfit today, but like, <laughs> it was legitimately the, the biggest God feeling that I had had in, I couldn't tell you how long. And I was like, I've been doing something wrong. <laughs> if, if not only this is, as, this is the closest I've been in a long time, not that that's necessarily wrong, but just that. I've somehow gotten to a place where I'm convinced that something that brings me close to the divine is bad. That like, I have to hide mm. that or feel bad about that. Um, and I mean, you know, coming up like in the eighties and early nineties, there was so much of the just satanic panic bullshit about, you know, oh, the new agers and like, <laughs> Don just wipes his everybody face. rolls everybody does the Picard face palm at this point <laughs> <laughs> just I mean like I'm I'm a hopeless flower child you know like I get a moment of spiritual wonder watching my 18 month old daughter pluck a flower and try to give it to a tree 
I'm like, this is magical. This is special. And no, I haven't had that feeling in a long time with organized religion. Not since I was really small and full of wonder and not quite as cognizant of the bullshit that has just permeated organized Christianity as I know it. So like, I don't remember where this started off from because I ramble. So I'm going to pass it off to someone else. I'll add on to that, that I went through a kind of a rebellious phase because I grew up in Western Michigan, very conservative area. And uh, when I got off, when we went, I went to college with Don and uh, Hope College is also very conservative. And um, I went through kind of a rebellious phase where I went there to to try to strengthen my faith, go to the church whenever. And it got weaker and weaker throughout. And I didn't work for either of us. <laughs> I didn't work, yeah. And uh, it got to a point where it was like kind of this rebellion against establishment to the point where I took um, a tune from like the old Gnostic Christians and like we're talking way back and tried to use uh, tarot as a form of prayer. Oh, I remember that. And that was a new like you, you talk about your crystals. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done tarot reading. I think it's a great way to tap into your own subconscious truth but <laughs> It is, but I was like, I was thinking like, you can't put God in a box that says God can't speak to me through these cards. Yeah. Yeah. So then I tried it. I still don't want to read tarot cards this day because of that, but I don't do it anymore. Yeah. And that is, that is a big issue with a lot of our, our theology and our philosophy and our institutional bullshit has been, it's been all about putting God in a box. And look, I, I could tell you similar stories. I mean, you were, you were there about when I was at Hope College. I went to Hope College for the exact same reason, to strengthen my faith. And that did I'm not like, last. I had a good theater program. What was wrong with me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it didn't, for me, it didn't last very long because you, as you well know, Steve, about 10 minutes in, I'd already managed to grab myself a big ass black cloak and was hiding in the shadows. And then uh, I turned around and at one point I said, screw you organized religion and declared myself Pope and tried to start a new religion. Like, I remember that. Yeah, you remember that, right? <laughs> Like we all, we all reacted so badly. You tried to make me a cardinal. <laughs> you know, I figured what the hell if the Catholics can do it, why not? I mean, it's all complete crap anyway. But, you know, I was being a, a, a ridiculous teenager, but we were all dancing around the same idea, which is that all of these structures, all of these methodologies, all the things that we have put in place, they're utterly human constructs. The Bible says exactly nothing about them. Jesus said exactly nothing about them other than to say, it's full of shit. Um, and so every time these organized structures lead into saying, this is the way it must be, then what they're saying is this is the way it must be so that I can exercise control. I think, I think what you all are touching on, uh, what is the common thread between everything that I've heard is the, is the human desire for something transcendent. Like, we all are born with this, this inherent desire to be connected to something bigger than us. Um, and, and so, uh, not and so, but the truth is for me, I, a long time ago, um, and I think this is what drove me to pursue uh, uh, a lifetime of ministry, at least I hope, um, is, is trying to trying to create space for people to connect to that transcendentness in whatever way works for them. Um, and so 
I know, I know a lot of people may listen to me and say, well, you know, how, how then can you call yourself a Christian minister and believe that whatever way works, uh, works, but, um, it is not up to me to determine how it is that you relate to God or the divine or how you articulate your relationship with God or the divine. Um, my job is just to open the door and, and to point you in a direction that will give your life uh, a sense of purpose and connection beyond yourself. Um, and so I may be doing this whole pastoring thing wrong, <laughs> but but I really do believe that that is, that is ultimately my call. And, and, and I think that comes from having this very expanded view of what it means to quote unquote, preach the good news to people, right? Um, I'm not there to, to push you into a box, but really to help you live into what it means to be your most authentic self, uh, which is what I believe was the, was the original hope of religion in the first place? How do we tap into the fullness of who we were created to be? And some way, somewhere along the line, it became, oh, this is a great tool to control people. So screw authenticity. Um, how do we how do we keep them, you know, in line? Now this is where I want to I'm I want to step in for a second. I want to kick this over to Emmy because this is something that's been dancing in my head as you've been talking. Is this reaction that people have when they have that encounter with the divine. And I'm not sure if it's fear or reverence that causes someone to encounter the divine or indeed through encountering the divine, a sense of their own mortality and immediately want to exercise control. Now I'm kicking it to Emmy because I know that in our time as chaplains, we've both seen this in folks on their deathbed who are confronted with their own mortality, who are confronted with the prospect of Almighty God, not as an abstract, but as a dude I got an appointment with in about 10 minutes. Um, yeah. When you have that moment, all of a sudden control becomes everything. And I, I, I wanna see, Emmy, can you maybe speak more about that? Cause I know you have way more experience encountering that than I do. Hmm. Would you mind clarifying a little bit? The, the, what I'm talking about is, and, and I, I said, this is something I've seen when, when people are, are, are near death is when they start trying to encounter God or when they start actually encountering God, that they want to exert control over their life, that they want to exert control over other factors, control over the people around them. Suddenly in, in last moments, I've seen this, I, I got a guy I know who's going through this right now where he's facing death and all of a sudden he wants to control everything. Yeah. Uh, that, that desire when you're confronted with the divine or when confronting the divine makes you aware of your own mortality or whatever it is psychologically there, that encounters with the divine suddenly inspire in a lot of us a desire to control and not a desire to submit, which is what you would think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just fascinating to see the different ways that people respond, right? Like some people, all they want to do is submit to the point where they're taking away their own agency and how they're understanding what's going on and just sort of saying, you know, whatever God's will is. And it's like, well, you can co-create that will with God, right? Like you can't always change the cancer, but you can change some of the ways that you're 
going about this process or, you know, whatever it is. And then there are some people who all of a sudden want control over all the things because they're afraid that once they're gone, those things won't get done right. Or those things, you know, you know, whatever it is, like there is just this sense, there is this real sense of either giving all to God or giving all to one's own hand. And I wonder if we see that in other places too. I've said too much already, so I'm, I'm gonna let you guys jump in on this. Um, I, it's a bit of a tangent, but the thing that's coming to mind, and I think in something like this train of thought is something that we should search for the divine in. Um, the idea of relinquishing control. Um, I know a lot of people, I love a lot of people who uh, really look at the giving over of control, just giving it to God. And I do this sometimes too, as just being the utmost in like, a, being the goal, you know, the, the goal is to, to give it all over to God. And I, I, I do feel like there are, there are places in which at least for me, and again, I'm not trying to dictate doctrine here. I'm just, I'm just some, you know, chick sitting on her, uh, you know, bed in West Michigan. But um, I feel like there's a lot of compulsion to just hand over all responsibility mm. and all decision-making and all everything just like, oh, well, if, if everything if I just live my life the way that this religion tells me to exclusively and I don't quest, you know, I'm not questioning it. I'm just treating what this church says is God's will as my blueprint. And if I'm just giving over, you know, you know, telling myself that I don't care about any of the bad things that happen or anything like that. If I, if I just give myself over completely to God, then, you know, it'll, fix everything but like we're human beings <laughs> you know you can never fully i mean there are some people i'm sure who can i'm, I'm kind of losing my own point here i i guess what i'm getting at is i feel like there are a certain percentage of people who want to give over responsibility yeah. for their own decision making I, I see what you're getting um, at here and this is this is something i mean you guys know i've preached at a, a number of different times is this tendency to use god as an excuse to do nothing to say well, God's got it. The hell do I have to do? Um, or use God as an excuse to say, well, the Bible is the blueprint for my life. And so I know all the answers and I can't do anything wrong as long as I act in those parameters. Yeah. It, it is basically that kind of surrender is using the Bible as a way to avoid asking Reddit's favorite question. Am I the asshole? <laughs> That actually reminds me of something that I would really like to talk with everybody in this group. I know we're, you know, not long on time, but um, that I would really like to talk. Well, at least I'm not. I've got what, like, 20 minutes left before my computer dies. Um, but well, get it out there. Let's let's hear it. I, I've I've been developing this notion that 
<laughs> a radical notion makes it sound all high-minded. Really, I think it's just like a hot take that a lot of people might not agree with. Um, I'm coming around to the idea, and I've, I've run across this in my uh, year and a half long so far quest to raise a tiny human and try and make her the finest person I can make in as much as it's up to me, you know. Um, I'm coming around to the idea that the idea of, <laughs> I'm always so nervous saying this to someone. I've only ever brought this up to a couple of people. I'm coming around to the idea that good people and bad people is a terrible concept. Oh God, yes. Um, that we don't need to be labeling anyone good person or bad person. We can label this action good, this this thing someone this effect someone had on another person or society or whatever this thing bad this action bad or this action good but labeling people good or bad i am starting to think is the source of a lot of the problems that we have as a society i, I want to interject i totally agree but my my pearl clutching alarm bells went off that that sounds remotely like hate the sinner or hate the sin but love the sinner I, you know, I can see people taking it in that direction. I'm, I'm thinking more along the lines of my, my issue is honest, honestly comes around a bit more to the people who label themselves good people. And I think most of us, most, I would say the overwhelmingly vast majority of people either think that they're good people or think that they're trying to be good people, which puts them in, you know, good people adjacent. So at that point, oh, I'm glad I'm cracking y'all up. Oh, um, I like that phrase, good people adjacent. <laughs> Excellent. Adjacent is a spectacular word. I love it. But um, I, like if, if, you, if, you just, if you've decided, okay, I am a good person, or at least I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. I, people can embrace that, but they don't get quite get to where that leads. Um, if, if you label yourself a good person, there's this tendency, I think, and I think we see it a lot in the way that people interact today to say, okay, well, I'm a good person. I wouldn't do something, you know, evil. So they're incapable of seeing the evil in their own actions. Um, I feel like this also kind of carries over the, on the flip side of this is I'm, I'm not trying to dig into cancel culture, but the idea that if someone does a bad thing, you know, distinctly, you know, we can identify this as a bad thing, that that whole person is labeled bad, like mm -hmm. the, the whole, the whole shebang. Um, I feel like it, it, when you start categorizing people as good and bad, and there's always the, you know, reducto ad Hitlerum to it, you know, like, okay, well, what about, are you trying to say Hitler wasn't a bad person? On, on the one hand, no. But on the one hand, yes, I'm trying to say he did an astronomical number of horrifically bad things. Isn't that a more important metric than trying to say, okay, you know, Hitler bad. Yeah, we can agree on that. You know, that's, that's not going into why, how, which are the more important things, because it's very easy to label, you know, the obvious bad. Again, it, it everybody always cites Hitler. So that's what I bring up, but oh, you, you're um, right on that. And I, I want to, well, can I get one, one little yeah, thing? No, in go ahead, quick, go though? Um, sorry, this is a stump that I've been on in my head for a long time and it's nice to get it out. Um, 
it, it makes it easy to demonize the people that we label bad. And I don't just mean to say, you know, bad thing is bad. I mean to say, uh, bad thing is evil and not human. Like, mm-hmm. no, this is all evil that men do. This is all, and I'm not meaning to imply gender there. It's just, you know, the phrasing. Um, this is all individual decisions that we make. If we just say, okay, well, a very bad person did this and none of us are anything like them. No, we all could be that guy. <laughs> it's it's all the decisions we make. No, I want to throw, that, I throw this at you. I want to throw this at you real quick because you've hit on exactly the point I wanted to throw out to what Steve was saying a second ago, which is the whole hate the sin, love the sinner thing. And well, the thing is, is hate the sin, love the sinner. And here's a hot take for you. The phrase hate the sin, love the sinner is the OG white, uh, the OG all lives matter. It is a phrase that means it is. It is it is a phrase that is exactly literally true. It is a thing we should absolutely all believe, but is weaponized to mean the exact opposite of what it's fucking for. Yeah. Yeah. You're only this saying this about realization to make. approve of. Yeah. <laughs> so so I would say, uh I I would I would throw this question out to Courtney. Isn't everything that you said, right? Isn't that the basis for this? entire conversation though the 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 question of bad thing bad people good thing good people like the 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 whole basis of of the question of why why not be exclusionary toward people who are part of the lgbtq community like we want to clean our hands of being guilty of excluding folks because we don't want to be defined as bad people. So it's really easy to like say, oh no, that's not true of me. Like I'm not a bad person because I'm not doing that. Uh, so I think that is the basis for this entire entire discussion. What is the impulse within us to want to create that line in the sand that says we're on this side of the fence and they're on that side of the fence instead of like naming that it doesn't make us good and bad people. We really have a problem with, I guess, pushing people beyond the margins. We're not even marginalizing people. We're pushing them beyond the margins of community. Yeah. Uh, and so that ends up being at the heart of, at the heart of uh, this whole distinction and dichotomy of, or between uh, what's good and bad. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think in re- a couple things, you know, jumping off of that one, I feel like in religion and in society in general, it, we've gotten into this team sports mentality. Um, I mean, in politics, the red versus blue is hilariously obvious, but I, I do feel like and you mentioned I, I believe it was you that mentioned the whole, you know, joint enemy thing really mm-hmm like can't it, it's it's effective at bringing people together but is that all necessarily a good thing <laughs> you know um again the add is getting me i, I had something else that, for that too but well, someone your, else go <laughs> your t- your team metaphor is one that one that i like and it's it's i, I had this conversation with someone a couple years back i can't remember who it was it might have been you for all I, I recall is that you know, as Christians, we like to put ourselves on, let's say, the red team, and we like to put all the Hindus on the blue team and all the other people on the on the green team. And what we don't realize is that Jesus was saying, let's all stop playing the game and go have lunch together. Um, and 
of course, we as Christians on, on the red team, we immediately hear, okay, well, Jesus was saying, let's all get, let's all come together. So let's all come together the and beat the hell out of the umpire. Like we, we can't grasp that the whole, the whole argument of the gospel wasn't to redefine the bounds of the teams. The argument of the gospel was to drop the game and go have lunch together. Yeah. Hmm. And the funny, the funny thing about that, that, that metaphor uh, is that in most, in most denominational settings, mm -hmm. if you were to preach that, you'd get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not something that's happened to me before. Yeah, like, like uh, <laughs> only because I know so many backstories. <laughs> yeah, that, right? uh, um, yeah I, it, it's funny that that really is the heart of Jesus's message. Uh, it's actually in a prayer that he prays before, you know, he's crucified, you know, uh, God, I pray that they would all be one as we are one, you know, uh, and yet to preach that particular type of message within certain spaces is, is deemed as radical or even, um, uh, I would go as far as to say, people would say that's universalism and you're, you know, uh, the Christian church has no space for that. Um, which, oh, does it not? <laughs> and I, and I'm one of those. Well, I'll leave that for another episode. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm with you. It's like, oh, we're veering into dangerous territory. It's like, oh, so the salvation of all people is dangerous territory. I yeah. see. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you it one thing. Matter of not everybody can be in our club, or it's not exclusive anymore. I'll tell you one thing from personal experience: you never want to get in a get a room in a room with a, a group of theologians who have power over you and say, "Well, you know, you could just say God in three persons that we know of." <laughs> You say so many things that would like would get you kicked out of church. Like, how many times have I gotten kicked out of church, y'all? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I got to be honest with you. The re I think half the reason I went to get ordained was I just got sick of getting kicked out of churches, so I figured I may as well get one of my own. But, but I wonder if the problem with with even our system is that we are so afraid of being kicked out. Yeah, that we really don't. We we. We don't, Ooh. we dare not say the thing that, that the spirit is really emboldening us to say, because we're so afraid of not being a part of the team. Like we, and, and I think that is the danger of wanting to be those people who change the system from the inside out is inevitably you become a part of the system. So like, this is why I'm saying uh, to be a clergy person who who represents, um, I wish it were not true, but as a clergy person who represents uh, institutionalized religion, like an organized religion, um, it is difficult to be to to want to be one of those people who says we need to blow this thing up and 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 like rebuild it from the from you know from the ground up um, because in a lot of ways you are dependent upon the system to continue making it. Uh, and so that becomes the struggle. Uh, we want to create a space where everybody belongs, but in doing so, we run the risk of no longer belonging. 
I think this also goes so partially to what we talked about in our last conversation, Don, where we talked about the, the I, we talked about it in other terms, but it's almost like a trap or a temptation, mm -hmm. if you will, of as a clergy person being able to like claim, you know, the will of God. Well, here's the thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to strut my, my geek cred here for a minute. Every single clergy person is Isildur. Anybody get it? I see Courtney got it. Oh, I get it. Lord so of the Rings it's show. my favorite novel. <laughs> Every single clergy person is Isildur because we took one look at that one ring of power and said, you know what? I could probably use that. Throw it into the fire. But, but, but I wonder, I wonder, I wonder in saying that, Don, what is at the heart of, of wanting that ring so that you can use it to do something with it? Well, I think maybe, we, maybe it'd be better to say we're all Boromir then. We all wanted it, but for good reasons. <laughs> I, and that, that's what I'm trying to get at. I think we all come into it with great intentions mm -hmm. to, 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 to do something to the system from the inside out. Um, but it doesn't often end up being that way. Yeah. You got to find a way to end up being more like uh, Gandalf, who, you know, through this ring, I would do great good, but through me, it would do great evil. You got to end up being like Galadriel, who says, you know, no, you know, this is okay. Yeah. This, I'm not doing this. And also, I'm leaving. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's honestly that's where I'm at right now. Is I got I got my ass canned from my last job for standing up to people who wanted to abuse power. Like that is we have to be willing to do that, and we have to be willing to bear the consequences for it. Because hey, we are following in the footsteps of a savior whose whole thing was that. And and so I think that takes us back to Steve's earlier question, like as as folks who are quote unquote, lay people, right? How can you help clergy dismantle the system? Um, I think, and, and, and I, I answer the question from the perspective of someone who was, who has been a chaplain for a long time and, and now serving in a, in a church, uh, working with the congregation. Um, one of the greatest challenges to wanting to rebuild the system from the inside out uh, is often not having uh, the buy-in that you th that you need or would love to have in doing that dismantling work from the inside from people in the congregation. Um, one of the greatest detriments to moving forward with with you know uh, an agenda that is. Um, true to the gospel that is true to social justice and making the outcast be a part of the community and all of those beautiful things. One of the greatest uh, obstacles to that is the belief that doing it the way we've always done it is going to get us something new. Um, and, and you'd be amazed at the amount of folks who, when you try to come up with something new or you do present something new, they say, well, no, we've always done it this way. And so, that's the way it has to be done. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say advocacy from from those who are who are in the pews uh, for what the clergy is trying to do. At least if it if it if there are signs that this would actually move the congregation forward in living out the gospel in a real way, mm -hmm. um, having supporters in the congregation would definitely help that. 
I know that sounds really obvious, but it's often not uh, not as easy to get it to happen when you're working with the congregation. Well, I feel like as a congregant, it can be kind of hard to pipe up because for a lot for a lot of people who go to church with the kind of regularity that their input in these sort of situations would carry some water, like that's their community. Like that's where their, their friends are, you know, their, your kids play together. It's, it's where all your socialization goes on. Um, I feel like there's gotta be a fear there of just being ostracized. Like you, 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 as a parishioner, you stand as, as a pastor, I, I know you guys are committed to your congregation, but at the same time, Pastors can go on to another church. Like, in fact, they usually do at some point in their lives. But, <laughs> but, <Not always. laughs> well, just in the churches that I've been in, there's always, you know, pastors that come and go. Um, maybe that's not typical. I should be open to my own limited experience. But like for parishioners, it's usually a matter of they live in that community and like, getting ostracized from your own church for speaking up on something that matters to you would be in like in this town, have fun. Oh, have fun dealing with that. Like it's, it's a big ask for the average person. I mean, I, I worry about coming off as a little kooky to, you know, other moms at the playground trying to find play dates for my kid. And I have been like already ostracized by one mom for, I don't know if it was the social justice or the, or the, the buy thing or what, but you know, it's, it's, it's scary for, I think most people to be in a place where they might be uprooting their entire social structure. Now I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out here as a means of response and also shameless plug. Uh, but that is my, my theory is, and that's at the heart of the community that we're building here is this belief that you have to be, intentional about openness and communication yet and not just about like honest like you have to be in building a christian community the pastors the leadership first have to be intentional about intentional about establishing this as a place where you can question stuff where you can own mistakes where you can own weirdness like you need to have for a community to function in the way we need it to you need to have a community where the, the pastor can get up in front and say, y'all, I'm a freak. And you got to roll with it from there. And everybody has to be willing to, you know, to, to put that freak flag on, to be who they are at, in, in that community. And it has to be led from the front in, in that way. If you look, if you feel inclined to check websites and you look on ours, our website, I actually, on our about page, I did a whole Q&A about this sort of stuff. And one of the things I said is, you know, are there people with dissenting opinions here, basically? Yes, there are. And we welcome that because we're going to have arguments. We're going to piss each other off. There are going to be people here who are old and have conservative views and are trying to grow. And there are going to be people here who aren't okay with that. And a part of this journey together is being willing to have the conversation and not kick anyone the fuck out because we don't like the questions they're asking. I think at the heart of what you just shared, Don, is, is, is the reality. We talked about this earlier, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's this, there's this, um, there's this inherent desire to be connected to something that is, is, is transcendent, 
Um, and so I think whether a person is clergy or you are a congregant or parishioner, um, we all at, the, at our core, we don't want to be put out of the bounds of community. Mm -hmm. That is really what, what I'm hearing in all of this. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to lose my sense of connectedness to other people, both as a pastor and the person who's receiving from the pastor. Um, and so I, I commend you for wanting to do the work to say, you know, we're going to try to remove as many obstacles as we can uh, to those, to that being uh, to that being a fear, uh, so you can come here with your questions, your doubts, your 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 wonderings, your wanderings. Uh, all of those things are welcome um, uh, because we're all on the journey of of trying to belong in some way, shape, or form. Um, mm -hmm. Which which is what I believe is like the best example of what a true a truly spiritually healing community looks like. Um, too bad we don't have many more examples of it so yeah it is really healing to know that if you share an opinion there won't be moms who ostracize you and no longer want your kids to play with their kids you know it's really important to know that you're part of something where your whole your whole life won't fall apart because of dissenting opinion and that's what we were talking about earlier is like the moderate of being like I have opinions but I don't want to share them because I'm afraid of the consequences a moderate just, is just a radical who's terrified I I think these are all awesome ideas I feel like I'm I'm the squeaky wheel again so I I, I might as well be the person to throw in on this I think it's also important to keep in mind like the needs of people who have been heavily marginalized that they might not have the the spoons they might not have the space uh nope. to deal with coddling people who need to learn that they're people um i i i have a lot of yes. that. um i i feel like it's um you know, like you can't just ask someone in a marginalized group to just be the sounding board for a bunch of folks just figuring their business out and necessarily just be okay with that. Volunteering for it is, I think, incredibly noble work, but I don't, I don't think it should be universally expected. Of people. I think there is something to be said for a safe space being available as well for people who just need to not hear from people who are like are you sure they're a person worthy well, of the same amount of respect you, you know using a marginalized person or somebody abused by the church as a case study for others is probably not yeah and here, here's approach is basically springboarding up courtney says i think case study is a pretty good word for it it's not you're not really treating them like a person either yeah, yeah. as a sounding board now here, here's the thing when we're talking about situations like this um, there is a certain degree of pastoral responsibility in situations like you're describing here. You know, we like to talk, us pastors like to talk a good game about being preachers and teachers. But when we think about teachers, we're thinking, I'm preparing lessons to give you information. No, being a teacher is a lot of breaking up conflicts and telling, no, Timmy, don't eat the paste. No, you can't make fun of him because he's gay. Shut up. Um, 
you know, teacher, teacher role of a pastor is community regulation. It's like, look, he doesn't have the spoons to deal with your shit right now. So I'm going to pull you aside and tell you, you're being an ass. And this is why. And it's not because I hate you and I'm not pushing you out of community either, but you need to shut all of the way the hell up and listen to what's being told to you because you are being a complete and utter dick. Um, and, and the pastor has to be the one to do that. Like, cause you can't expect, as you're quite right, you can't expect your uh, spoon deprived members of your community to be the ones who are responsible for providing that pushback. Now, should a pastor uh, express that pushback in these, shall I say, colorful terms by which I just did? You know, probably not. Uh, unless it's the sort of person who's receptive to that, in which case definitely go ahead and do that. Um, but what I am saying is that the pastor should be, this is what we're for is, you know, the preaching is a side effect. Like we, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to communicate information, sure. But making sure that the community can stay united together in Christ is pretty much the job. So that is, that's Please, why- I need to interject. I might be disappearing anytime now because my computer is almost completely dead. I've turned down the screen and it's still flashing in the corner. So I might okay. have so, to, so if you, I if might you have to call it. If you drop off, what's going to happen? We'll continue the conversation as long as we damn well feel like. And then when Good. you drop off, when you drop off, that'll be where we cut for part two. I, I think I may drop off. At the same <laughs> oh, time oh, 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 God, that was perfect. Oh, my oh. gosh. Good work. Good timing on that one. So we're gonna to draw to a close here. Uh, uh, for those of you who've still been watching, I wanna thank you for listening along this far. As you've probably noticed, we have wound up recording so long that we've broken this up into two parts. Uh, so this, this ending here is kind of serving for, for both, both parts. So for the two of us that are, are, are the two of you that are still here, uh, do you have anywhere that people can find you, anywhere you wanna plug, or would you rather not be associated with this? <laughs> Um, if you're looking for me on social media, uh, uh, whether it's uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, you can find me at at Rev JJ Flag, uh, R E V J J F L A G, um, for all of those things, and uh, look forward to connecting with you. All right, Steve, you got any, anything you want to promote? As long as we're closing up here. Uh, as for me, right now, I'm I'm working in a, as a consultant and life is transient by nature. So I will be moving around in the next three to six months, I bet we'll be moving somewhere, uh, whether it be back home. And so I don't really have anything to promote or where you can find me right now, but um, I look forward to the next adventure is all I can add. All right, well, we'll close out with the usual pluggables for our own community here. If you've been watching this, you're not part of the community, our Discord servers where we do most of the stuff. Uh, you can find the link to that on our website, which will be down in the description. We also got a couple other video series that come out in the week. We've got our Thursday Psalms from the Trails uh, on, I'm going to say Sundays, but it's usually more like Mondays these days is when our scripture and sermons come out. Uh, so you can check those out. They're all on the same channels. We get them on our podcast stream, YouTube channel. They usually come out on Facebook as well. Uh, the Psalms one also comes out on Instagram because it's small enough to fit there. Um, and last but not least, we have a get together uh, every Saturday on our Discord server as well, 10.30 p.m. Japan time, and uh, that's 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday mornings uh, for you guys over there. So if you want to join us for some of that, hop on the Discord server, join us there, have fun. 
but for, for everybody else, um, we're going to sign off here. If, if you're watching this at the end of part one, uh, stay tuned next week for part two, where uh, uh, Reverend Dr. JJ Flagg and I and Steve uh, continue the conversation to a bunch of other different topics. If you're watching this at the end of part two, holy crap, thank you for sticking along for both parts. It's great to see you on both. Uh, have a great week, and we will see you next week, whenever that next week is. Take care. <laughs>